Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate. And today I'm joined by my two friends, Micah and Josiah Mould, of, who are the owners of Serpents and Salamanders. Hey, guys. Welcome to the show. Hey, hey thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. So uh, you want to get started on how you two got into uh, herpeticulture and herpetology and reptiles and amphibians in general? It is, it is quite the story. Uh, Josiah, do you want to start off and I'll, I'll fill things in? Yeah, you'll probably be able to remember some things that I don't. So Mike and I had the privilege of growing up in West Africa. Uh, our parents were missionaries in uh, in Guinea. So we went there when I was three years old. Mike would have been one and a half, something like that. Yeah, so, one and a half. So yeah, so from a very early age, we were, uh, were exposed to just a menagerie of, you know, different critters over there. And I honestly don't know exactly how or what the the specific catalyst was, but I just remember pretty much anything we could catch, we were trying to catch and keep it somehow. Um, <laughs> we weren't very good at it because uh, we didn't really know anything. Um, but yeah, I just remember any chance we were out there catching lizards um we tried to stay away from the snakes since we didn't really know anything about them and a lot of them were venomous. At least that's what we were told. Um, but yeah, in our yard, we had any any place we could stock with like fish. We would put water and put fish in. We had this like pit. Um, my dad built it to make cheese, oddly enough. <clears throat> but that didn't pan out. And so we we filled it with whatever we could catch. So it was a frog pit for a while. We kept a, uh, a Nile monitor in it for a little bit. Um, just like a little bit of everything. You know, at night we would like keep uh, chameleons in our rooms. Like they would hang out on our, mosquito ne- on our mosquito nets and we would hope that they would eat the mosquitoes that got into the room. Um, I don't know. What else What else did we have? We had a little bit of everything. I know we had some parrots for a little bit. Um, yeah, the so, yeah, we we had tortoises at one point where uh, we bought them, and we didn't know what to do with them, so we just let them go in the yard. <laughs> and uh, I think one stuck around for a while, um, but every once in a while, you know, we'd we'd, see, we'd forget about it, and then you know, a few months later, we'd see the tortoise walking walking through the backyard. Um, trying to think of what other things I I remember, you know, digging up uh, red-headed agama eggs and putting them in buckets to hatch. I never, I never had much success doing that. There were always, you know, one or two would hatch out. So it was, it was quite the experience for sure. Yeah, I remember your dad once told me uh, you guys had a pangolin for a while. We did have a pet pangolin. Unfortunately, we did. Unfortunately, Go ahead, yeah. Unfortunately, it didn't live as long as it probably should have. Um, yeah, it was one of those things we you know someone brought it by. And we just kind of begged our dad to buy it. <laughs> so he humored us and did. And I mean, it did okay for a while. I mean, it just crawl around the house and it would eat ants off the floor because we had ants in our house. Um, but yeah, I just ended up dying one day. But I mean, it was, I don't know if you ever had any interactions with a pangolin, but they're the chillest animals. Like it would actually climb up into our bunks and like sleep with us at night. It was the coolest little animal, but I don't know how long it ended up living but not nearly as long as it should have. 
And of course, you know, they're incredibly endangered now because of yeah, uh, the bushmeat trade and maybe the pet trade too. I'm sure. Right, and that's how we ended up getting it. It was a it was a young animal that its uh, mother had been shot for bushmeat. So there was someone just selling this baby pangolin on the side of the well, was it the side or was it the was it the airport? I can't remember. You know, was, now, now that we talk about it, I think that they had it at the airport and you bought it at the airport. I think you're right. Yeah. So, so for uh, for reference, overseas, a lot of places um, at those international airports, that's where um, people will take like baby animals and sell them because you know they're trying to get sell them to to tourists and to you know Europeans kind of traveling through, so that you know you'll see all the most random baby animals at the airports, chimpanzees. Um, Dikers, dick, dick, bush buck, um, you know, tiny little cute babies, but then, you know, obviously they grow up to be uh, not necessarily the most ideal pets. But, but yeah, it was a, it was a pretty cool pet. I still remember we would take him out to the yard and he would, you know, dig up ant hills. <laughs> so, I would get another one if if I could. <laughs> so uh, after you guys came back to the states, you actually. Uh, you went to school and we actually have kind of a mutual mentor from our academic days. You want to go into that? Yeah. yeah. Sure. So sorry, we keep interrupting each other here. Sorry. Um, so yeah, we all, uh, kind of crossed paths, not, not in the same years, but with the same, uh, professor, Dr. Chris Carmichael. Um, and he, while he didn't give me my love of reptiles, he definitely helped me look at reptile keeping in, in a different way. Um, I had the privilege of working in a serpentarium for several years. Um, while I was there, you know, I managed a lot of the larger pythons, Lester Sundays, Lester Sundays, the retics, his boas, um, the alligators, black throat monitors. Um, it, it gave me some good hands-on experience with some larger constrictors um, before I kind of moved on and, and expanded out my views. Uh, did you want to add in on that, Josiah? Yeah. Uh so yeah, I think um, my interests diverged a little, little different from um, I guess you guys in the rept from the reptile realm. Um, I guess I wanted to name drop um, one of my high school teachers though. When we came back to the states, um, one of my biology teachers' name was uh, Dave Spring. Oh and, yeah, and um, you know I already had that interest in wildlife, but like he kind of fostered that and really like just with a lot of hands-on classes you know taking zoology ornithology um, but specifically in his zoology class we went out and we learned about like vernal pools and you know the ambistamid salamanders and that life cycle um, and I, th I think that that was probably a little bit of a catalyst for me at least where I diverged and went on to kind of foster my interest in uh, salamanders and while it wasn't entirely I didn't follow that entirely with Dr. C um, that is definitely the direction I went with him because of his background working, um, you know, with that zoo and wildlife biology, uh, major there. So that, that I guess, I guess I, yeah, I wanted to backtrack a little bit to say how I got to Malone and working with Dr. C. Yeah. I completely forgot that we also have, uh, uh, Mr. Sprang in common as well. Yeah, that's, that's true. He was, I would say definitely one of the best teachers I've ever had. Oh, yeah. um, and it just really, at least for me, you know, I've, I've always had a love for wildlife I've, and all aspects of wildlife. You know, I love, I love birds. I love reptiles. I love amphibians. 
I love insects. I love mammals. You know, I, I love everything. Um, but Dr. Sprang really gave me um, that scientific mind, you know, that, in, that, that insight to when you're out in nature, um, you know, questioning everything that you see, you know, and, and wanting to know more about it and diving into it, you know, and, and, and get, get, get over the superficial. Um, I think he really helped drive that home. And, uh, and yeah, definitely was a, a major mentor for, to get me where I am today. So after you guys uh, graduated college, uh, not as your main career, but as more of a side business, you guys started up uh, serpents and salamanders, which, by the way, is one of my favorite local reptile herpeticulture businesses, might I add. <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> yeah, free advertisement. Take it where you can. <laughs> we don't advertise very well, so we'll take it. <laughs> so uh, you guys want to go into how you, you uh, started that up? Take it All away, Josiah. Right. All right, I guess I'll start. So after we graduated from college, you know, we still, I guess you could say we got real jobs, but, you know, we still had this passion and it kind of, you know, was on the hobbyist side of things since we didn't really pursue it um, from an education, I guess, perspective, or I guess, I guess formal education, I should say. So I really started to focus on keeping different species of newts and salamanders. And it kind of opened up this whole new world to me because I knew, you know, basically what we had here in Ohio and there aren't any salamanders really in West Africa. So I didn't know a whole lot about them. And that was around the time too, where I was starting to discover these forums on the internet. And I discovered just this whole underground community of, all these other keepers and I discovered all these other species that I had no idea existed in. At first it was kind of like, Oh, I have to have them all, you know? Yeah. But thankfully I didn't get everything at once. And I've slowly kind of, as I've gained experience, kind of gathered a little bit here and there. Um, and we got kind of got to the point where, you know, the fun part was yeah, I had these animals, I was learning about them in captivity. And, you know, the next step is not just, letting them thrive, but also seeing them reproduce. And I've always been fascinated by the amphibian life cycle, uh, specifically with caudates. Um, so like, yeah, just the next logical step for me was to start, you know, working with reproducing them. And nuisance salamanders can produce a lot of offspring. So at that point I was like, well, I could give them away, but it is somewhat costly to maintain these animals. So I started going down to the Columbus reptile show and I would, you know, sell some here, there to the, to the vendors down there. And eventually over time, uh, we started getting our own table, um, just because it was more, we just had more to sell. I guess you could say that's, that's a very, I guess, high level expo explanation, at least of my side of things. I don't know if you want to touch a little bit on where you got to where you're at, Micah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think in some ways it mirrors it, obviously you, have taken your passion, the, the amphibian side. And, uh, I've always, I have the love for things scaly. Um, so it's where we get that nice divide and, uh, the yin and the yang, you know, the serpents and the salamanders. Um, but for me, it really started, uh, yeah, I would say out of college as well. You know, I, I kept a few, just a few, uh, species of rat snake, um, and a 
had a few ball pythons at the time. Um, and then, yeah, breeding a couple and having those extra offspring. And I did the same thing, you know, head down to, to Columbus or, you know, call up some of my reptile friends and kind of wholesale them off. Um, and then, you know, make, you make a few bucks off of that and you're like, well, I can, I can at least cover my expenses here. And then, you know, buy, buy a few snakes here, a few snakes there, a lizard here. Um, and now yeah, it's a pretty, a pretty sizable and impressive collection, I would say. Um, but it's still, for me, it's definitely, it's obviously not my full-time job or anything. It's just, I, I love keeping the animals. I love, you know, watching them go through their natural life cycles and, you know, collecting eggs is, is still one of my, my favorite things to do. There's, there's no better morning than walking into the reptile room and seeing those pearly whites. You know, I still, I still probably get as excited now as I did the first time I ever bred a corn snake. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun to see the, the business grow over the years and we continue to grow every year. So, uh, you want to go into some of, to some of the stuff, uh, you guys keep, uh, starting with you, Josiah. Yeah, sure. So some of the first species I kept were some of the ones that were available, um, just commonly in, uh, like your mom and pop stores. So I started out with some fire belly newts and, uh, some morty newts and some pale tail newts. And those species have kind of remained some of like my favorites. Um, I really enjoy yeah, those Asian species. And then I also really enjoyed the, the crested newts uh, from Europe. Uh, marble newts are one of the first ones I acquired. And they're, yeah, they're just beautiful, like emerald green newt with uh, when they're younger, they have a bright orange stripe down their back. And then the males during the breeding season, they develop this, you know, impressive crest and this really high fin on their tail. Um, so right now, I'm not even sure how many species I have. I'll be honest. Um, probably should have wrote it down before we got here, but I have, it's, it's less than 20, but I, so I have, let's see, probably three or four species of crested newts. Um, I have a few species of their, like the small European pond newts, like the palmate newt and the smooth newt. Um, I have, you know, some of those, I still have some fire belly newts. I have a few warty newts. Um, I still have a pair of paddle tails. Um, those are probably still one of my favorites. Um, I started to keep, uh, those Iranian newts. So I have some Kaisers and then the Crocodus newts. Um, those are a lot of fun, very colorful. And then I recently started getting into some of the European fire salamanders as well. Those are for whatever reason, I didn't have as much interest in the terrestrial species when I first started out. And I wish I had, um, cause yes, yeah, some of these species are just, just stunning in some of the, the colors that they exhibit. Um, so I think that's about, well, my last count was about 16 or 17 species. And yeah, I've definitely acquired those over the years. I didn't start out that way. Um, it's been about 10 years, I think, since I've actually been keeping. So it's, I've built up that collection in that amount of time. Okay. Um, what about you, Josiah? I mean, Micah, bleh, sorry. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I, I have a wide variety of colubrids and pythons. Um, and also, I, I, I monitors are a definitely a passion of mine. So I have a few species. 
Um, I mainly arrange like rat sync is really where I started um, keeping some of the new world and old world. You know, so I, I keep a, a pretty large collection of Texas rat snakes and all the, the morphs associated with that. Um, but I also have uh, um, Everglades rat snakes, white-sided rat snakes. Um, for the old world side, you know, I have the, the whole range, the rhino rat snakes, uh, red mountain racers, the cocci, um, have mandarin rats, tiger rat snakes, um, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of rat snakes, um, corn snakes, which are obviously also a rat snake. Um, but then I also have a, a pretty wide range of North of, uh, other North American clubers as well, um, such as like the Florida king snakes. I'm a huge fan of Florida king snakes. I have a pretty wide variety of uh, Florida king snake. More. Um, oh, what else do I have? I have I have quite a few snakes. <laughs> um, I have uh, a group of Therai kings. Um, I have oh the the Japanese rat snakes as well. I think I missed those earlier. Um, the California king snakes. Um, oh, and then a, a few bull snakes. I'm still in the process of building my bull snake collection. I just started buying into them in, within the last two years. Um, so I, I only have a few, but I should, uh, I should be producing a few clutches next year. Um, as far for pythons, you know, I have your usual ball pythons. Um, I've, I've, I've dabbled in, in Burmese, but I, I tend to keep things that are a little bit more smaller, more manageable. Um, the largest snake I currently have is uh, the the boa constrictors. Um, I have a few, or a boa emperor, I guess is, would be the the proper term. Um, I have a few morphs of those. Um, so, and then for lizards, I keep the Aki monitors, green tree monitors. I have Nile monitor, uh, some black throat monitors. Um, I keep a few species of day gecko. Um, the peacocks and the gold dusts and the the line day geckos. Um, it's starting to sound like a lot of animals. <laughs> yeah. And then a few smelt snakes. So yeah, it's a it's a pretty sizable collection, like I said, and it's uh, it's something that I've grown over the years. And I, I have some animals that I'm just you know really really proud of. And I have I'm starting to get into um, you know fourth generation that I've produced, which is, you know, awesome to see, you know, where I've, you know, I have the grandparents and great grandparents and I still have those animals in my collection, you know, and I'm, I'm seeing the offspring of the offspring of the offspring produce. So it's, it's something I'm definitely really proud of. And you also recently got into uh, crocodilians a little bit as well. <laughs> I knew you were going to mention that. Yes, I did. <laughs> Impulse by group of caimans, uh, the uh, the smooth front came in so they're still they're still juvenile but they're they're doing really really well for me um little eating machines mm. and i i will say even though it hurts me to say a little bit in front of you i i am enjoying them quite a bit so i'm not saying i'm going to expand my crocodilian collection out but they, they they have been a lot of fun okay so uh in terms of your uh business what we say is uh, be your main market in terms of your who you sell to. So for me, I, you know, I have, I definitely have some high dollar rare animals. Um, but the majority of what I produce and what I sell is to entry level hobbyists. Um, I, 
produce a lot of corn snakes, king snakes, milk snakes, you know, some lower dollar animals, but they're, they're animals that are very hardy. They do well in captivity. And, you know, it's an animal that you can sell to a beginner keeper, um, you know, and talk to them about care, get them excited, bring them into the, the reptile hobby. You know, those are, those are the clients that I, I kind of target. Um, it's at least for me, I have a, I have a hard time breeding some of my more sensitive animals and selling them. Um, but I do occasionally, but it just, for the audience that we target, it just gets a little bit more difficult. Um, and I, for me, I really love just, you know, having those, those entry level people and, you know, getting them excited about keeping reptiles and, you know, teaching them entry level things about reptile care and corn snake, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic first snake that I would, you know, encourage all parents to get their child their first pet corn snake. But I digress. I would say on the, the Newton salamander side of things, don't I don't sell a lot of them locally. I find when we're at the shows, a lot of my conversation is educational for people. Like it's just not something that most of them have seen before. Um, I get a lot of like, oh, I used to catch those in my backyard. I'm like, well, no, but. <laughs> Unless you grew up in Iran. <laughs> yeah. So that that is one angle I def uh I seem to be taking at the shows and I I do enjoy it. Um and I never encourage anyone to buy something uh especially like a neuter salamander on impulse. I mean, no animal really, but um they're not something that you're just going to come to a show without having anything set up and then take home and then give it to your kids. Like it's not It's just, yeah, not good for the animal. Not, it's not going to be a good experience for the people either because it's probably going to die. So I've pro I can't remember countless times I've probably, you know, given the same spiel to people down at Columbus, but part of, part of me gets frustrated sometimes. But when you get that person that has come to multiple shows, they've done the research outside of the show, and they're like, hey, man, I heard what you said, and I... You know, I'm working on this vivarium, you know, show, I'm, I'll show you this picture. Let me know what you think. Um, and then maybe next month I'll purchase one like that to me is really rewarding because I know that person is going to then, you know, take care of the animal and they're going to get as much enjoyment out of it as I have, because, you know, it's a lot, a lot of work goes into raising these animals and, you know, I, you don't want them to just be a throwaway pet. I don't want to just sell it just to sell it. You know, there's, there's gotta be more to it. Um, so all that to say, I don't sell a lot of newts and salamanders locally. <laughs> There's not a huge market in Ohio. Uh, most of most of those are online. If we post on like Morph Market or Fauna Classifieds, um, California probably buys most of them. <laughs> a bigger market out there, um, and even overseas. So like we don't directly export, but like Korea, there's a huge hobby over there um, with like the small terrarium animals. So basically what they'll do is they'll, they got their, their export guy and they'll go around, they'll look for all these animals and then they'll come to us and they're like, oh yeah, we want a whole bunch of those to sell at our store and then we'll ship them off to them and then they get them exported. But uh, yeah, I'd say most of the newts sell, uh, or most of those are online. Yeah. Not a lot of local sales. Right. So, and I, I that, uh, you know, we sell, we sell the education piece uh, because like I said, we're half of what we do is, you know, the, 
the educating people, talking to them about the basic care, you know, and so a lot of it does sometimes seem redundant, but I think that's definitely an important part of our business model. You know, we'll, we give out our business cards and we, we want people to come back and talk to us if they have problems and we'll walk them through it. Um, because, you know, a lot, I think a lot of people, the way they view reptiles is, you know, that first time pet that, you know, they just kind of buy for their kid and forget about. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we really want to kind of change that mentality, I think. And when you're dealing with, a, like I said, a, an amphibian, there isn't much room for error. So we want to make sure that it's going to the right home for someone who knows what they're doing. Okay, so um, the whole majority of your market being, like, for at least for your news and salamanders being either out of state or overseas, how would this uh, whole U.S. competes act, what, what are your takes on it? <laughs> I mean, strictly from, you know, a small business standpoint for at least the salamander side of the business, you know, I would be dead in the water. Um, I mean, you know, I said Ohio is not that big of a market for caudates. You know, I might sell one a show if that. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, the whole thing has been very frustrating just because there is a lot of misinformation around it and originally i mean even in 2016 when you know fish and u.s fish and wildlife tried to use the lacy act to ban everything um like i almost gave up keeping entirely back then because i was like i mean what am i gonna do if i can't like work with you know because there's not a whole lot of hobbyists you know there are many people that buy stuff but there aren't a whole lot of even serious hobbyists in ohio so like it kind of really shuts down the ability to network with other keepers. So I almost got rid of everything back then. I'm glad I didn't. And I actually, we actually expanded. Um, so yes, definitely frustrated. Um, probably careful how I say this, but, <laughs> um, I mean, I, um, from one, like I can see both sides of the argument because, um, you know, there are some people that, you know, you know, I, I, I definitely recognize the risk that B-Sal is. And like I was I was I think I was definitely for the import man um, because <clears throat> just the the way that newts and salamanders were imported, they, they were a throwaway animal. I mean, you could buy you could buy fire belly newts wholesale for like 50 cents. And then, you know, you could buy them for like three bucks at a show paddle tail newts for five bucks. And they're, you know, they're just animals like, like it's just not, it's just not good for that. Those populations of wild and then how they're handled once they get here. Like it just doesn't encourage people to put in the time to learn about them and then take care of them. You know, they just go ahead and put them, they put them in with their goldfish and then forget about it. Um, so like, I definitely understand that uh, that import ban. The interstate um, didn't make as much sense to me, um, especially with animals that were already here. And if they were proven to be, you know, disease free, I mean, I don't, my animals are all healthy. Like I didn't see the, as big a concern um, with the animals that are already in captivity. So hopefully I articulated that well enough that I am frustrated with, I'm very frustrated with it, but I, I can see, I can see both sides of the aisle, but 
it definitely felt like a huge overreach and you know i'm not i'm not i know newton salamanders are a small fringe but there's a lot there's a lot of other things in that build that could have much larger ramifications down the line right and i think that's the important point um you know if the 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 senate's voting in is it two months now um I, and if it passes which it probably will um you know josiah's 18 species he's essentially locked in ohio you know and it's a, as far as what that would do to the business i think that that's self-explanatory um but it it's the overreaching um things in that bill that are even more concerning to me even outside of the the amphibian ban you know that it pretty much gives the you know fishing game the power to to expand exponentially and to it gives the keepers very, very little power or, or insight on it. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe in two months, your average keeper is not going to feel the impact out, outside of some of, some of your amphibian keepers. Um, but I think in five years, we're going we're gonna to be having a very different conversation on what the actual impact is. Um, so I yeah, definitely would encourage anybody to, to continue to research and continue to contact your senators, all your senators, um, yeah. because this, you know, this is, it's, it's a, it's a serious problem. And, uh, it's definitely, I think an overreach is, is going to be an understatement when we're, when we're having this conversation, looking back at it. Yeah. So also probably a good idea to support uh, USARC as well. Yes. You should all be members. Yep. Yep. Support those who support you. I mean, they've, USARC has done a, a great job so far, keeping us informed and, you know, fighting the battles for us, but, that's, that legal work's not free, so a, fr a free shout out to them, I guess. It's the least we could do. Yeah, and back when the the ban originally came through, I mean, they were they were you know took it to court and they got the original interstate, I guess, interpretation of the Lacey Act overturned. So, you know, the interstate ban was no longer in effect. But yeah, I mean, there was almost a year there where we thought things were pretty much shut down. So. So, uh, um, Micah, in particular, what species have you had success working with and breeding with? That's a very open-ended question. And I, I've bred quite a few species now. Um, nothing, I would say, too challenging. The one, the one species I was probably most proud of, which unfortunately ended in failure so far, is my green tree monitors. I did uh, get a clutch last fall um three good eggs um but unfortunately i uh i i botched the incubation um so granted eggs are particularly sensitive um and i would say green tree monitor eggs even more so um to humidity fluctuations and temperature fluctuations um <clears throat> so i i had one egg go almost full term um but then it ended up finding it dead in the egg so but my female, she is starting to cycle again. The male's been breeding her. Um, so I, I am expecting another clutch here soon. And uh, I've, I've changed up my incubation tactics. Because um, I, I was incubating the same as I, I do my Aki eggs, which I've had success with my Aki's. Um, but from my research and talking to uh, a few of my friends who have successfully bred them, um, they're, they're just much more sensitive to... Uh, to that humidity in the box, especially later in incubation. 
Um, so I'm, I'm hoping for success this next time around. But as far as overall success, I mean, I've bred, um, you name, you name a, a common species in the hobby. I've probably bred it at one point or another. I've, I'm someone who I like to, I like to dabble in a project and then, um, you know, shift on to the, to the next project once I, once I have success. So, um, a wide, a wide variety of colubrids, small lizards, um, monitor lizards, you name it. And, uh, what about you, Josiah? So, I don't know if I've bred anything that would be considered too challenging, uh, at least in the Newton Salamander world. Um, I, what I produced the most of is probably the marbled newts, um, just because I've had them the longest. Um, that was one of the first species I've bred. Um, let's see. Yeah, so the marbled newts, um, I've got the, you know, the firebelly newts, I've bred those before. Um, Chinese warty newts, I've had those reproduce. Uh, alpine newts, rib newts. Uh, southern crested newts, Danube crested newts, uh, palmite newts, smooth newts, um, the Nerurgus crocatus, the Lake Ermia newts, I've produced those. Um, yeah, so with newts and salamanders, a lot of like getting them to lay eggs isn't the hard part, it's like raising the young. Is the is the challenging part because they need small live food, um, so I've I've dabbled in a few techniques to make it easier, but I mean it's still still a lot of little mouths to feed. <laughs> um, nope. The main, sorry, go ahead. Forget about axolotls. What's Quite that? The Don't forget about axolotls. Oh yeah, I have produced a lot of axolotls too. <laughs> um, I forget what I was saying. A lot of little mouths to feed. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, so essentially with newts, like, you know, you got all your tank space for the adults, and then six months out of the year, you pretty much have to double all that space to house all the offspring. Uh, so just space can be a challenge, especially as I keep adding adding tanks for new species each year, it seems like. <laughs> um, so basically what I do is I, I'm trying to get more towards live aquatic foods that are freshwater, um, but I still do rely a little bit on um, hatching brine shrimp to feed the the smallest of the newt larvae. And I get them onto live foods as soon as possible, like Daphnia, um, chopped black worms, white worms, like small live foods like that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean... I don't know if I've bred anything that is considered super rare or challenging yet, but the the ultimate goal is to breed my paddle-tailed newts. <laughs> so, but, so a lot of those newts, you those are most of your newts and salamanders are usually from uh, temperate regions, right? Yeah. So, in order to get them to breed, they need like a cool winter period, kind of like a brumation sort of, and <clears throat> that's that basically induces them to breed in the spring. So most of mine are actually starting to lay eggs right now. Um, the crested newts have already started laying the, the palmate newts, um, marble newts just started laying the crocatus 
have been laying. Um, I'm trying to think what else might be coming up here soon. So yeah, it's a it's a fun time of year to see all you know the, you know the the raising the larva is a lot of fun, but even just the courtship that you see in the water is neat. Um, you know the the males will do this little dance for the females. You know, um, especially with the crested newts, with they're all you know their mating dress. You know they're just you know spectacular little animals that a lot of people just have no idea you know have no idea about them like. Like I said, everyone at the show thinks they're little lizards. <laughs> so that that is where I'm at right now. Hoping some species breed a little later in the year. I have some firebelly newts that'll probably start laying in a few months. Um, I have the the blue-tailed firebelly newts, and I also have some Japanese firebelly newts that hopefully will both lay a little later this year. Um. The one species that hasn't bred for me is the, or the genus, I should say, is the, the one of the, the crocodile newts, the Tyla tetriton. Um, I have, but I, I believe they're varicosis. I don't know if I'm saying that right, like the Himalayan knobby newt. Um, I have two different bloodlines, and I'm really hopeful that I'll get eggs from both of them this year. But uh, it's still a little cold and a little early for them. But I, I did see some courtship for one of the groups last year, so... I am optimistic we'll get something this year. Um, so, since not a lot of people keep news, you want to go a little, give a little uh, rundown about uh, basic husbandry for them? Yeah, sure. So, what I tell for most of the species I keep, um, I tell most people the same thing. They need, just need cool, clean water. Um, and then a lot of the other stuff is like not necessarily cool, clean water and then a good diet. Um, a lot of the other stuff as far as like decorations and substrate is somewhat optional. I've, I've never measured, like I don't measure pH or anything with my water. Um, so <clears throat> from my experience, they are tolerant of a fairly wide range. Um, I know some people, like some of the newts that come from like the Middle East and some of like those rocky streams, they try and put a little limestone in their water uh, for the for like the Neruga species. I've messed around with that a little bit. Um, but I don't find it to necessarily be a requirement because it's not in all my tanks. Um, so, so my basic setup for the aquatic animals is going to be a sponge filter um, and then enough water space to account for the animals in there. And then some plants. Um, I only use a few species uh, since my tanks get pretty cold in the winter. Um, I only keep a few plants that do well in the cold water. The, my, the main one is guppy grass or naha grass. Um, that seems to do really well in my water. And then I have a little bit of, uh, I believe it's some strain of java moss. It doesn't grow super well, but it does well enough that it doesn't die. And then, of course, the, the infamous duckweed is in all my tanks. <laughs> um, so that, I mean, it's, it's, fair, it's a fairly simple setup. The main thing is that cool, clean water. Um, if you can't keep them cool during... The summer, that's where most people are going to fail. Um, and when I say cool, like, you know, I'm shooting for like 70 or below. Now, there are a few species that don't mind those warmer temperatures, but like they're not one that most people are going to to be. That's not something that I'm really going to be selling at the shows. Like some of the crocodile newts can handle some of those warmer temperatures. And just because the newts can handle some of those warmer temperatures for a little while doesn't mean that long term that it's going to be good for them. So I always, you know, shoot for 
below 70 if you can help it. Um, as far as diet, um, I feed mine almost entirely earthworms. Um, I culture a few, I culture European earthworms and red wigglers, but red wigglers, no one really seems to like. And I've heard some people have had horror stories with them because of the secretions that they excrete. Um, they've said that it's killed some newts in the past. I never had that issue, but some of them definitely don't like the way they taste. So I usually stick to the European earthworms and then like chop night crawlers for the adults. And then like the smaller ones, you know, they'll eat a lot of black worms, white worms. Um, I culture a lot of Daphnia, um, a lot of Daphnia in the summer. So yeah, just, I mean, variety is key, but worms seem to be pretty much the best food that you can feed caudates. Um, I do pellets from time to time, you know, I'll feed the, there are some, uh, some, there's some decent pellets out there, you know, like the axolotl pellets seem to be pretty good and I don't use them exclusively, but I know some people keep their axolotls exclusively on those pellets and they seem to do fine. Um, so yeah, I mean, that good diet is key. And then aside from that, I mean, you need a really good, a tight fitting lid, uh, cause some of them, I mean, axolotls don't really climb, but they can jump. But something, yeah, that will keep the the ones that have the tendency to climb in the water. But aside from that, yeah, I'm pretty much almost all air-driven, except for my paddle tail newts. I do have a powerhead in their tank. Um, I've just kind of been messing around with the conditions in there to see if, you know, more water flow will encourage them to breed. But it's kind of just an experiment right now. Okay. Uh, so... Oh, this is kind of a broad question. Uh, yeah, sure. But what are your y'all's uh, favorite animals, both just as a whole and the ones you keep? Oh man, that's a good question. That, yeah, that is pretty tough. I, I love everything, and that, I think my favorite animal is the animal I'm working with at the time. Um, I do, I do love a challenge when it comes to you know nailing down husbandry and um you know figuring out some of those cues for breeding um kind of, kind of going along those tracks um of just figuring out animals one species that i have had tremendous difficulty with and i've been trying for many years to breed is the, are the tiger rat snakes um i know people have had success with them but the people who have had success have not really been able to figure out where that success actually came from um, it seems to be kind of a random occurrence still in captivity, um, figuring out what those triggers are. Uh, you know, I've messed with, messed with everything from, from temperature um, to humidity swings, feeding fluctuations. Um, and I, I have not, I've, I've had lots of breeding, but uh, no eggs as yet of yet. So I think some of those challenges is what make, makes this the most fun. Um, but as far as favorite animal in my collection, Oh man. Well, I would say probably right now it's my Cayman lizard, um, <laughs> which is a, one of my new acquisitions. I've really, really been enjoying the the temperament of him. Um, very tegu esque in his uh, in his temperament, but he just has that cool, you know, overall cool look to him. Very, very calm animal. Um, for being an, an imported animal, he's yeah. You know, right out of the bag, he was pretty much like a like a puppy dog so definitely definitely a cool animal but i i love my my monitors as well 
all of them. I love my green trees and uh, my dial monitors, <laughs> my black dress. They're all they're all a lot of fun. Yeah, I don't know if I can. Let me try. I'll try. So there's there's one species that I have that. So I've always had an affinity for the warty newts for whatever reason. They're not the most flashy, but I don't know if it's just because it's one of the first ones I had. Um, but I've just always had an affinity towards them. So my favorite might be, and it's partially just because of the story behind it too, is I have some, I have two, they're called spot-tailed warty newts. Um, and they're, they're captive bred, but they're almost non-existent in captivity. And uh, the person I got them from, they raised their adults from eggs um, that were laid in captivity as well. But the adults did not produce young until they were 10 years old. So like there's a huge long wait um, for these animals to, you know, be producing viable young. Um, so mine are about five years old. I'm not even sure if I have a male and a female, but um, I can hope, right? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, just because, yeah, the, the story behind them and knowing where they came from um, is fascinating to me. But yeah, they're not the most flashy or brightly colored newt you'd ever see. They're pretty unassuming. So what would be ultimate, uh, ultimate goal, dream species for each one of you to keep? I mean, it would never happen, but one of those... Uh, I mean, I don't think I could even provide the right, I don't think the the right conditions for it, but have you seen those, uh, those pied and dryas, the, the Chinese giant salamanders? Oh, okay. Yeah. They're the, the pied ones. They look, they look insane and I know it would never happen. And I don't think I could provide the, <clears throat> the adequate, um, environment for it, but like, I guess in the perfect world. You know, if I could afford you know, like a 20,000 gallon aquarium with a chiller <laughs> and it was legal, then maybe something like that. Yeah, we could all dream, right? <laughs> that's, that's a really tough question. I would, for, for me, the majority of the animals that I really want, I already have. Um, one species that's definitely on my bucket list that I haven't quite gotten around to are the 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 Shinosaura. Oh yeah, you need the, to... uh, <laughs> the uh, what 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 what's their common name? The uh, the Chinese crocodile lizard, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a species that I've been looking at for a long time, but they they're they're pretty rare in the hobby. Um, they're slow they're slow breeders. Um, and they're they're fairly pricey, so. I'm I'm kind of biding my time and waiting for a group to to a group of young animals to become available. Um, so it's definitely on the bucket list. And then one other species that I'd love to own, it would be probably a Gila monster. But uh, I don't know if it's necessarily on my bucket list. But if the right opportunity comes comes along, I'd probably pick one up. <laughs> the uh, the Borneo earless monitor would be another species that I would I would love to own. Um, Uh, but once again, you know, they're fairly, fairly rare and uh, hard to come by. And while I don't believe they're currently being imported in the past, the animals that were available were fairly poor condition. 
Um, you know, so I just, I couldn't bring myself to drop $5,000 on an animal that might die. (laughs) Maybe in the future. I guess one other species that, I mean, while highly improbable, um, it's definitely more in the realm of the real world than the Andreas, but, uh, Another warty newt is the Tamdow warty newt. Um, I know there are some in the states, but odds of acquiring some captive offspring are pretty much nil, but it's at least more realistic to dream about than the other one. (laughs) So, Micah, you know I had to ask this of you, but why do you love Nile monitors so much? That's that's a great question. Um, I mean, it's obviously a, there's, it's a multi variable equation. Um, you got to factor in where, you know, where I grew up, that's a, a lizard that I chased as a kid. Um, I still remember um, vacationing in the, the Gambia at Mather resort. There were dial monitors just everywhere. And uh, <laughs> we would being extremely intelligent children, we would chase these six lizards and try and corner them and grab them. and i still i still remember the first one we cornered in a shower and it just you know in typical nile monitor fashion just whipped its tail around and uh smacked one of my friends right across the face (laughs) (laughs) and i think from then on i've uh, just fallen in love with the lizard um so i mean yeah it's a species i had the the honor of catching it and keeping as a child um, and then also in 2018, we were able to travel back to Guinea and I was able to actually catch an, another one um, it, as an adult, which was a pretty awesome experience. Um, but outside of the personal, the personal connection I have to them, um, for me, they're, they're one of the most beautiful monitors. Um, I think it's, it's really a shame that they're imported in such large numbers where, you know, people buy them who really aren't prepared to handle them they're a very large a very strong a very truly intelligent monitor um and they're they have a pretty shy disposition which makes them challenging for your uh, for your average hobbyist um but but overall i would say that they're one of the most striking of the african monitors um and you really um the the intelligence i would i definitely would consider them more intelligent than um, and this is just personal opinion, you know, I, I'm not facing any scientific facts on this at all, uh, but I would consider them more intelligent than say like a black throat or a water monitor or a savannah monitor. Um, just the way they, they, they seem to calculate every move when they watch you you can, you can see it in their eyes. That is something that's always drawn, drawn me to them. And I, I, I made a reference, I think earlier, even today that in some ways they, they do remind me of, uh, of a croc monitor in, in that respect if, if any of you have ever worked with a croc monitor before they they are extremely calculating um and extremely self-aware and all monitors are intelligent um but i think there's just some, something special about a nile um and not only that but they are they're fairly sensitive animals um but you know they're not a like i mentioned before they're not an animal that for your for your average hobbyist by any means um, but even even experienced hobbyists, I think, sometimes can struggle can struggle to keep them successfully. They're not a species that are bred really in captivity um, for for multiple reasons. Um, I guess I won't get into it too far, but uh, there seems to be a uh, a lot of issues with uh, with females developing scarring on their their ovaries in captivity, um, whether that's due to uh, improper husbandry as they grow or diet. 
Um, but there have been very few people who successfully bred them. So that's definitely something on my bucket list. So you also recently got some uh, Senegal chameleons that you're hoping to breed, right? Yeah, that's uh, just another uh, example of picking up animals that I used to love as, and catch as a child. Um, I picked up a, 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 a small group of them. I, I have eight currently. Um, they're still they're still acclimated into captivity. I'm still, you know, still working on getting them uh, wormed and hydrated. Um, so they're they're they still have a little ways to go. Um, if if anyone's dealt with imports before, you know you 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 always buy more than you need, unfortunately, because you're going to have some mortality um, in your in your average situation. But so far they they're doing well, and uh, I have hopefully I have a, uh, at least a male and a female in the group, and I'll I'll be able to produce produce some offspring here the next couple of years. So uh, this is a question for both of you, but are there any uh, future planned projects for either of your collections? So for me, I have a few projects that are, st that I've been gro growing up over the last few years. And I'm kind of excited to see produce. Um, so I have some yellowtail crebos that will won't produce this year. They're still a little small, but possibly next year my female will be up to size. I've been very uh, very cautious in raising them up. You know, you always hear horror stories about about crebos and the regurgitation issues. Um, so I, you know, I keep their the prey size very very small. I feed sparingly i do feed twice a week but extremely small prey items and you know I've, I've been sticking mainly to to frog and lizard prey um to try and mimic their more of their natural diet so they're that my animals are now where i believe are going on two years old but they're still my female i would say maybe next year but probably the year after when i'll officially first breed them so that's that's kind of exciting for me i have a, a group of false water crobers that i'm growing up that will be breeding size here shortly um but i think one of the projects i'm most excited about is really expanding my monitor collection um and really producing a, a wide a wide variety of, of monitor lizards uh what about you Josiah? So I hate to be a downer here, but I'm definitely looking pretty closely at what's going to happen with this America Competes Act just because, you know, if I produce a thousand new babies, you know, they're not going to be ready to go until the end of summer. Um, and if they're landlocked in Ohio, then, you know, it's going to take me 20 years to sell them all here. So... <laughs> Um, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely weighing my options. I am, you know, they are laying and I'm starting to raise some stuff up, but as far as expanding, um, probably not going to expand too much. I mean, if I hate to entertain the idea, but just because it's a very real possibility, I mean, I probably won't downsize if the bill passes, but I will probably, I mean, I will produce a lot less animals, so. I'm not looking to start anything too crazy. Now I do have a few species that are rather small still, some young offspring that um, I have some emperor newts that are, you know, just a year old. I have um, some TNN crocodile newts that 
aren't old enough to breed yet. Some, uh, some allow 40 newt setter babies. Some species that I would like to try and breed uh, in the future. So, I mean, I'll still work with some of those and raise them up um, just to have the opportunity to see them reproduce. But as far as anything new, I'm probably not going to go too crazy. Let's just say that. And honestly, acquiring new newts and salamanders is just kind of challenging right now as it is. Um, there's just not a lot being offered. So like the stuff that I do have, like I've just had to be kind of opportunistic in the right place at the right time to, to pick up. So even if there was a project I wanted to start, doesn't necessarily mean I would be able to just because of availability. Gotcha. So uh, anything else you guys want to talk about? Well, what else, what else do you want to know? Uh, I don't know. I think I've known you guys for so long that I feel like I've had discussion, discuss a lot of stuff with you. So I don't know what's new or not. If that makes any sense. No, I, I think that's fair. Um, so I mean, but then again, it isn't really for me. It's for the audience. So. Right. Right. You got any more good stories from overseas, Micah? You want to share? I know kind of just talked real briefly about that, but I mean, since that was a, a big part in where we ended up, there might be, some, I don't know, there might be something else good. There's just sometimes, sometimes it seems like a little bit of a blur. It does. I mean, I think for one, it's a miracle that we're, we're still alive. So when you look back, <laughs> some of the things that we did, um, I still remember um, at Tinka going around and we used to, uh, so I don't know if you're familiar, but there are uh, there's a, a group of swallows, an, an old world group. They're called sawwing swallows, yeah. and they they nest in banks. <laughs> um, so as kids, we would at this spot there was like kind of a lot of open clay on this mountainside, and the birds would nest it and tunnel in, um, and we would we would go along, we'd put our hands in the hole, you know, and we'd, we'd pull out the babies and play with them and then put them back. Um, but that's how it started. But then we, we found out that if you put your hands in holes, there's animals up at the other side, right? So we were just going around this mountainside and every hole we saw, we were sticking our hands into and trying to pull things out. <laughs> and as you can imagine, it, it, it ended interestingly. So, we came to one hole and I was putting my hand down there and I'm like, I think I feel something furry. You know, my, and my friend was, <laughs> my friend's like, no, it, it can't be furry. So he put his hand down in there and he's feeling, he's like, yeah, it does feel furry. So then I put my hand back in there, grabbed it, pulled it out. And it was this massive tarantula. <laughs> probably <laughs> like looking back was probably one of the horn baboons you know, which is a hyper-aggressive, highly venomous um, species. And just the fact that it didn't bite us is a miracle, right? Yeah. Um, the fact that we didn't find a cobra or anything. Um, now, looking back, we, we ended up digging that hole out to see if we could find anything else, and there was a fresh molt in there. So the tarantula had freshly molted, you know, it's still soft, so it didn't have the, it didn't have the ability to bite, um, which is, you know, a miracle in and of itself. But just 
you know, look, thinking back, like, how did we survive doing things like that? You know, like in West Africa, where there are, you know, a large population of venomous snakes, um, <laughs> horned baboons, tarantulas, who knows what else could have been down there, you know? Um, but just, you just kind of show you the, the childhood that we had. It was, it was quite the experience. Um, we found, we found quite a few different things. Uh, at that same mountain, we came across a, uh, um, a, a fairly large rock python that was like curled up on, on a hillside. We were climbing up and we both like put our, our heads up over the edge and it was that python was just sat there right on the edge looking at us. And so, you know, being six years old, we just went screaming, running down the hill for our parents. Um, a few years later, I probably would have tried to catch it, but <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of any, there any other crazy stories. Did you guys have? Oh. A, did you guys have a dog that killed a cobra or something like that? Yeah, we did. We did. Um, were you around for that, Josiah? Were you no, at school? I, I was at boarding school. I didn't. I did not experience that. So, um, yeah, we were we were watching TV, and so we over there the electricity isn't reliable, so we use generator power. Mm-hmm. Um. And we were having the light started flickering. So we went outside, like, well, my dad went outside to go fix it. And obviously being a little kid, I went with him and there was a Cobra that was on the door to the garage. It was like trying to climb up the wall. Um, and, and then when it saw us, you know, it like in my mind, I thought the thing was coming after us, but it was probably just, you know, saw us and then it wanted to escape. That's what snakes do. They want to get away from you. <laughs> and it, so it came flying off the wall and it came right at us. So, you know, my dad pushed me back inside and then shut the door. Um, and then we, you know, we grabbed, we grabbed some shovels. And when we ended up getting back out there, the dog had already grabbed it and had it behind the head, um, which is a pretty crazy story. Um, Cause as a general rule, when dogs try to catch cobras, the dogs end up dying. Um, the, the the Africans always say that uh, cats kill more cobras than dogs do, um, but he did. It was a spitting cobra, and he did get he did get venom in his eyes. Um, so he was he was blind for a few days and had like some irritation. But he he killed it like a good boy, protecting his family. So so uh, I guess you guys might have been like. A little too young at the time to do any serious harping, but what what's some of the good wild stuff you found over in uh, Guinea? So that I mean that's difficult to answer because actually the the herpiculture overseas is especially in West Africa is 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 limited, right? And our our knowledge even at the time while we were over there was limited for what we were seeing, what we were catching. Um, you know, there were obviously ball pythons, fire skinks, um, uh, green bush snakes, um, which when we were kids, we thought they were green mambas. Um, <laughs> that, that tells you anything about our education. <laughs> um, but for yeah, lizard-wise, red-headed agamas were, were prolific over there. Um, Sorry, sound like Miami. There were, 
<laughs> yeah, in some ways probably similar, except uh, a little bit better. Um, Nile, you know, Nile monitors. Um, but for reptiles, they're Senegal chameleons. Um, honestly, like there were a lot of like the smaller lizards, but in that culture over there, you know, reptiles are seen as you know evil and dangerous. So if there was ever an animal, a, a snake found, it was killed. Um, so really, we didn't see that many snakes um, growing up. At least, I mean, every once in a while we would come across one, but it, it was it wasn't really that common. Um, we saw a lot more dead snakes than live snakes, um, where you know uh, someone had found one and then they killed it, which is you know it's unfortunate. And there's there's also a lot of research that suggests that you know in areas where that's happening. You know, it's your, it's your, co- that's, that's part of the reason why your cobras are the most common snakes, right? Cause they're the ones that, that can rebound from that kind of pressure. Um, but yeah, it was, as far as snakes, uh, I would say it was definitely a little bit limited. I'm trying to think, Josiah, I mean, do you think outside of, you know, I think we found maybe like one house snake, <laughs> um, but the majority of the snakes we interacted with were dead, unfortunately. Yeah, there are a few more over in the Ivory Coast. Um, there were a lot more cobras over there. I mean, that's like the, the thing was, we just didn't know what stuff was. I mean, there were these little snakes, you know, that were out at night and people would call them night adders. And so we just stayed away from them. But I mean, is that what they were? I mean, I have no idea. Is there even such a thing as a night adder? Probably. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, a lot of it was just we didn't know. Um, yeah, and all snakes were venomous, right? Like even there were quite a few different species of water snake over there. Um, and granted, we still kind of messed with them a little bit, and some of them probably were extremely venomous. Yeah, I remember. But I it's do remember, tough looking back exactly what we were dealing with. Yeah, I remember. I, of course, I mean, as you said, like most of the snakes we saw were dead, um, and I'm not saying we didn't kill some too, because um, I do remember one time I did. I did catch and kill this little water snake and I brought it home in this little cup and I was just kind of messing around with it. And, uh, when our neighbor was like, Hey, you know, if that snake bitch, you'd be dead in two hours. Right. <laughs> but I mean, we still, you know, I have no idea what it was. Um, but I, even at that time, my interest definitely seemed to drift more towards the aquatics. Cause I remember being a lot more interested in the fish that were in the rivers. Um, and like the amphibians that were around the water. Um, you know, there were, there were a species of clawed frog that I remember finding that we thought were really cool. Um, I think I found a, some kind of dwarf frog. I mean, at least that's how I remember it in my mind, but what it actually was. I mean, who knows? Probably one of the coolest ones we found. You remember that frog, Micah, that you let go? <laughs> I knew you were going to bring that up today. <laughs> so we, we found this frog, and I don't know what it was, but in our minds, this thing could jump probably half a mile. Like it, and even like thinking about it though, like it probably had one of the longest jumps I've ever seen in a, in a frog. And yeah. so we it brought was, it was a very large frog. Yeah, we it caught was. It. Sorry, go ahead. And anyway, so we captured it and brought it home, and. Like, we caught it on land, I'm pretty sure. But, like, I was like, well, it's a frog. It needs to go in the water. So I put it in this bucket, and I had to go to school. Micah wasn't in school yet. So, so I was like, hey, Micah, 
your job is going to be to watch this frog all day to make sure it doesn't get away. Like, so I go off to school, come back however many hours later. Mike is nowhere near the bucket. This frog is nowhere near the bucket. <laughs> this thing was long gone. But I mean, it's just things like that. You're like, man, what was that? You know, like there's a real possibility. It could be something that wasn't even described by science yet. Um, and, you know, we'll just, right. we'll just never know. Any possibility it was a Goliath frog? Um, See, that's I a Goliath frog, but I, considering where the Goliath frog range is and the habitat we caught it in, um, probably not a Goliath frog. But, I mean, we were talking, it was a very large frog, and it had, yeah, like Josiah said, it had a jump that of what you couldn't even, like, imagine. Like, granted, we were small children at the time, but it could, it was you know, it would clear across the yard with a single leap. It was, it was extremely impressive. Yeah, it had some hops, as they say. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, hitting on the, the stuff that, you know, is still you know, open to science. I remember um, around the, the Lambe Barrage, you know, there are all these little pools um, and, you know, finding, uh, we didn't know what they were at the time, but looking back, they were uh, killifish, most, most likely killifish. You know, the really bright reds and the blues. And, they, you know, they would appear in these little puddles that then would dry up. Um, and then they, they would come back next year, right? Um, so I, I would love I would love to be able to go back out there, you know, collect some of these animals and uh, and, and, and see what, what they actually were. You know, maybe get something named after me. <laughs> Moldi, it just has a nice ring to it, you know? Eh. <laughs> But definitely, yeah, a lot of a lot of really cool experiences, you know, and that's that's really why we why we are the way we are today, I suppose. That and my mother never let me keep a snake as a kid, so. Hmm. So, so now them. I have. <laughs> so now you have how many? What's the final count? I could not even tell you to be honest. I have. Oh. Probably around 200, 200 maybe. I don't know. I'm not going to put a number on it. So you're kind of going through your uh, rebellious teenage phase now. <laughs> exactly, because I can afford to do it. So uh, you guys ever, since we're in West Africa, do you guys have any experience with the crocodilians that are found over there? Not too much. Um, so growing up, a really popular pet over there was a caiman. Um, obviously there aren't any caimans native, native to West Africa. So looking back, um, from my perspective, I would say it's probably either the, the dwarf crocodile or the, the West African, I believe it. Is it the slender snout? Is that correct? Uh, can you repeat that again? For, uh, the, the, the species in West Africa, the, it's the, the West African slender snout. Is that correct? Um, yeah, that so West African slender snout. And there's also a West African dwarf. So, right, yeah, and I would it would be, it would, I think a dwarf. Thinking back on what they look like, um, but it, it's tough to say, and it's not something that were, was overly common. There were, um, in a few rivers, um, Nile crocodiles, I believe, is is what at least what they, we would call them. They got they were pretty large, um, but. I, not, not our interaction with crocodilians was rather limited, and then obviously, as I mean, you can guess, 
um, you know, where there were crocodilians, they were, they were persecuted pretty heavily, um, except for maybe in some protected areas. So. Yeah, those niles you mentioned probably actually be a uh, West African crocs. So, so it'd be crocodilus sucus. So possibly, but I mean, looking back at them, even in the even in the the zoo in the Ivory Coast, they had they had an exhibit with Nile crocodiles that were collected in the Ivory Coast. So now maybe they were labeled incorrectly, but does does uh, where where does the Nile crocodile range end? All the maps I've seen, it's probably somewhere in the Congo or Cameroon. Right. I would say maps probably aren't accurate, though. <laughs> if there's one thing I've learned, if you look at a geographical map in any field guide, it's not correct. <laughs> <laughs> just, just throwing that out there. And that's more from my uh, my years of birding. Um, and birds obviously fly, so you're going to have a little bit greater range disparity. Uh, but take range with a grain of salt, I would say that. And then it, you have to factor in relic populations and then also just lack of, of research. I mean, West Africa is extremely under-researched. I think just this last year was the first time I've really seen any solid literature come out about West African herds. Or a solid book, at least. Okay, uh... Anything else you guys want to talk about? What do you got, Josiah? I'm not. I think I wasn't nearly as adventurous as you as a child. Um, I think I was less likely to stick my hand in any holes in the side of a hill. So I probably don't have as many good stories. <laughs> I have all my fingers, so. But I, yeah, I have all my fingers still. Well, both of you do, so it doesn't really make a difference. Fair enough. Uh, do you remember in Tilly Millie when you caught that? Uh, was it a cobra? I mean, that's what they said. Yeah, we were like fishing, and uh, I caught a little cobra, like a, some kind of water snake. And yeah, they told us it was a cobra, a water cobra. Hmm. But it was all black, right? What's that? It was all black, right? I thought it had some red on it too. Maybe it did. Well, that would make make sense because I mean that's. The, the spitting cobras are, you know, black with that, that red, that red neck. But yeah, I just, I just remember we were fishing with a piece of fish and that, that snake came out and grabbed it. And we were like, at first we're all like, Oh, this is so cool. And then we're, we're all, well, what are we going to do with this cobra? <laughs> you know, like there's a cobra on the end of our line. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Crazy things. It's, Well, uh, guess this is a good place to, to cut it off then. Yeah, I think so. I think you know. Thanks for for having us on. It's been it's been fun talking, and you know, maybe we can circle back around in a few years and we can talk a little bit more about our our successes and our failures and our expansion. Or if uh, you know, this competes bill acts, maybe we'll talk about how we uh, transitioned out of the reptile hobby. <laughs> I guess it'll go yeah, one way or another. Yeah, dep depending if nukes go off in Ukraine or not. Let's hope not. I uh, keep keep prepping, and we'll see what happens. All right. Well, until next time, guys. All right. Yep. Thanks a lot. Thanks you.